Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You guys okay? There's a weird feeling in this room right now. You guys sure you're okay? Take a minute, look at the person next to you, and smile to just remind them they're not alone in this room right now. Would you just... Take a second, just turn to the neighbor, share a smile, let's warm each other up. How are some of you guys wearing shorts? What is wrong with you guys? Oh, good Lord. I miss being young. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my joy, my privilege to serve as lead pastor here at Harvest. And uh, we are in week three of a four-part series on the book of Jonah. I almost want to say the gospel of Jonah because people don't often see the gospel in the Old Testament, but the gospel just spills over the edges of this book. And I think this Sunday, you're going to see that more clearly than most. I want you to pause whatever else you're thinking about right now, and I want you to do a little thought. I want you to think about your, some, one of your greatest personal failures, or regrets in life. One of the times when you really screwed up, like you, it wasn't like, oops, I made a mistake. You just did something really bad. I want you to pause and think about that thing. One of those life-defining things. Those things that make you fantasize about time travel that you wish you could go back and not do it or do it differently. One of those decisions in your life you wish you could control Z. Is that, how, is that in Windows, right? Control Z? I want to say Command Z, but I just wanted to, to honor the, the other side. Are you with me? Can you think about that thing that you did? Because we talk a lot about mistakes, weaknesses. Everything we say about our own misdoings is spoken in the passive, helpless voice. What was I supposed to do? Oh, you know, you understand. But I want you to think about the time when there's really no excuse. You just really did something that you should not have, and it, it deeply affected your life. Now, I want you to think about that and what it felt like in that moment. I'm a little distracted because I'm thinking about a couple of mine. And it's not easy when you know that you have really screwed up and damaged your life and the lives of others. And there really isn't a way to unring the bell. What's done is done. Now, because failure and regret are such an inescapable part of human life, I think that's why it's so life-giving when we are granted a second chance at something. It's not, every ta- it's not guaranteed, it's not in every screw-up that we get a second chance, but once in a while, a second chance is offered to us to get right something that we got very, very wrong. This is especially true in relationships, I think. When a heartfelt apology, real remorse, restitution, will rebuild a bridge that was burned because of something we did. But here's the thing. 
Apologies only work. It's, the effectiveness of an, apology, of an apology is not really a function of how sincere you are, how much you mean it, how much you're willing to pay to make things right. The strength of an apology does not rest in the apologizer, but in the one receiving the apology. Do you understand that? The true strength of an apology is not a function of how great a person is at apologizing, but how open the wronged party is at receiving the remorse and receiving the person back. I've been listening to podcasts a lot lately, and I listened to an hour-long podcast on the psychology of apology. And it's just remarkable to see how well-crafted certain apologies are, and yet they don't work at all. And I realized that we're looking at the wrong side of the equation. We work so hard on getting the I'm sorry right. But the real important part of all of that is how open the other person is to saying I forgive you. One of the things I love about God is that he is a God who does give second chances. I'm not going to recap where we are in the story of Jonah, but you know that right now, thus far, Jonah is not um, the hero of the story. He's actually the donkey of the story. So far in this story, the man of God is the worst character that we hear about. Everyone else in the story is better than the man of God. And one of the things I appreciate about God is he is not insecure. I'm I'm glad that the Bible is not just a polished PR book that puts only our best foot forward. It records everything. Just like a security camera, it's not edited, it's not produced. It shows the whole tape, including the screw-ups, the times when God's own people are the most shameful people in the story. And so thus far, what we see is Jonah is the most screwed up person in the narrative. And yet, when we find him today at his lowest moment of failure, when he should have died, God gives him a second chance. And I love this verse, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, Jonah wasn't just a normal citizen. He was a prophet of God, which meant on pain of death, his only job was to hear what God was saying and faithfully speak those words to the people of God. He wasn't supposed to editorialize. He wasn't supposed to add his own flair. He was simply a conduit between God and God's people, a verbal conduit to repeat God's words. And when a prophet ran from God, that should have been it for him. Not only would his career be over, but in many cases his life would be over. And yet, From his lowest moment of failure, God gives him another shot. I think that's remarkable. Because not everyone will always get a second chance. But with God, remarkably often, people who screw up get another go around. The message, the assignment which God now renews to Jonah is the same one that he messed up the first time. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh. And proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah this time obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. 
when God calls Nineveh a great city, he's not saying it's great like, oh, Disney World is great. Avengers is great. He's not saying great like, I love it. It's wonderful. He's saying great as in is two possible meanings. It's huge and it's important. And at the time, Nineveh was both of those things. It was the biggest city around, and it was hugely important. It was the capital city of the most powerful empire in the world in that time. They have been excavating the ruins of ancient Nineveh for about 150 years now, and its ruins lie just outside of Mosul, Iraq, a place I hope to visit this spring finally. And I'm not sure how much of those ruins are accessible to the public, especially after uh, four years ago, ISIL destroyed a bunch of the ruins and the artifacts, priceless things from antiquity, which they just destroyed. just want to sometimes kick those guys in the butt. When you think about an ancient city, do you put it in air quotes? What, is, what, is you, what do you visualize when you think about great cities in antiquity? Maybe you think about a sprawling giant field full of dung huts and primitive people walking around. Is that what you picture? Because the fact that we even have artifacts from nearly 3,000 years ago is remarkable. What, would, what are we building today that's still going to be around in 3,000 years? I mean, I look at the Menard store near where I used to live, and six months after it closed down, it looked like something from a zombie movie set, completely overtaken. The parking lot was, was a lake. It was pitted with cracks and all kinds of vines. Will your house be around 2,000 years from now? And yet these people built cities whose walls and structures and statuary and artwork are still around and, and they are actually discernible in their original detail. Here are a couple artist renderings based on archaeological evidence and writings for what ancient Nineveh most likely looked like. Is that what you pictured? Here's another one. I like this one better. It's a little more um, realistic looking. And when you think about Jonah's assignment coming from a nation that, that was completely dominated by the shadow of this empire, and he was assigned to go to the capital city, not only were these the cruelest people in the world at that time, but they were unassailable in their wealth their comfort, their prosperity. They lived behind these huge walls. Everything was going their way. They were on top of the world. And the great injustice of these people was that they had so much power, no one could stop them, and they knew it, and they abused that power mercilessly. When they say it was a big city, the excavated ruins show a city with a perimeter around seven and a half miles around. That's a huge city for antiquity. And Jonah is being sent to this city. So it's not an unintimidating assignment. I don't know what you picture when you think of ancient cities, but it was a massive place, and he was just one man from an insignificant place. He was called to preach to these people. So Jonah begins by going about a day's journey in. And what that means is it doesn't take three whole days to walk from one side of the city to the other. But his assignment was, in the days before the internet or radio or television, his job was to go to every public gathering place or town square and shout the message so that everybody passing by could hear. And that's how the word would be spread throughout. And that's pretty much how it worked throughout the whole ancient world until broadcast technologies really took hold of our societies. 
So Jonah begins going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, and here's his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So after all this drama, getting on boats, being thrown overboard, swimming, (laughs) being swallowed by a fish, nearly drowning, praying this prayer, getting rescued, and being spit up back on the shore. After all this drama, the whole mission was preach to the Ninevites, and this is his sermon. Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. I don't think Jonah gets an A for effort. Now, some people speculate that maybe this is a comical element of the book of Jonah. Like, we're supposed to say, oh my gosh, these Ninevites were so ready to repent that it only took five words, and bam, there was revival in the city. But I think, and a lot of others believe this as well, that this is a bit of prophetic sabotage. It's the way a child might, again, air quotes, obey what the parents tell them. When you were a kid, did you ever technically do what your parents told you? But not really? You know, when they say, go say hello to the guests, and what they want is for you to go, oh, welcome to our home, I'm so glad you're here. But they go, hello. And they walk away. My kids have done that before. I've done that before. Where you're going through the motions, but your heart's not in it. There's nothing of you going into that task. And I understand why Jonah's in this place. He hates these people. They are the vilest kind of person he could imagine. They had all the power, all the wealth, and instead of being kind or benevolent, they gloated in that power, and they were as cruel as their power allowed them to be. Jonah did not know a single person in his life who hadn't been damaged or lost something or someone to these people. Why should he like them? Why should he preach a message of reconciliation? So instead, he takes a part of the message God gave him. You're going to be overthrown, and he delivers that. He conveniently leaves out the part that our God is compassionate and merciful, full of grace, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That part he already knew, but he doesn't include that in the message. In fact, he doesn't even identify who's going to be doing the overthrowing. He just says, you guys are done. You Ninevites in your fancy city, smiling and eating and drinking, all safe and sound, you are finished. That was his message to the people of Assyria. Have you ever watched people that you cannot stand just get away with murder? It seems like no matter how badly they behave, nothing bad ever happens to them. They're bulletproof. And it's so frustrating to watch. And sometimes you see that imbalance in the world and you shout out to God, why don't you do something? Why doesn't anybody do something about this? A lot of people in America feel that way these days. We see someone in the other camp and we think, how can those people be allowed to just keep acting like this? Why doesn't God do something? And when we say do something, we usually mean something very specific. We have our own ideas of what it is we want God to do about those people. And in my flesh, I really identify with that because when I see people acting really horribly and when I'm personally affected by it, the do something part is, you know what I'm talking about, that sort of gloating, self-justifying feeling of, 
when some jerk is riding your tail for like five miles and finally passes you, cuts you off, and you're like, and then a mile down the road, you see that he got pulled over by a cop, and you're like, yeah, yes, praise Jesus. There's justice in this world. And it's even better if he's being pulled over in a construction zone and his fine is going to be doubled. (laughs) Then you're like, oh, there is a God. You know that feeling when you see someone you really don't like? And that's such a stupid, silly example, but it's one we can all identify with, right? We all drive. We all come across people who drive like that. And you just want them to get what they deserve. When you see people driving like that, and here's what I always say out loud, where where are the cops when they should be around? They're always pulling me over for a rabbit stop. But here are people driving like a menace to society, and they're getting away with it. Where are they? Why doesn't someone do anything? Jonah represents God doing something. He is doing something about the wickedness of the Ninevites. We sometimes wonder if God even cares if he notices the injustice and cruelty in the world. He does, and in fact, that's the whole way this book began, is God saw the wickedness of the Assyrians living in Nineveh, And he hated it. It had become intolerable to him. He was not okay with it, and he was going to do something about it. But what most of us expect God to do about wickedness like that is to crush the wicked, to grind them under his feet, to leave them so mangled they can never hurt anyone again. And that's partly because we're projecting onto God our own hearts. What we want to see is, I want to see all those people get what they've got coming. But Jonah represents God's most direct way of saying, I'm going to do something about those people. What has history taught us about when you take an oppressor and just crush them? All you do is either make them angrier the next time, like what we saw with the Germans in World War I, followed, followed by World War II, or you replace one tyrant with the next one. When we just crush the wicked under our feet, the world never becomes a less wicked place. It becomes an angrier place with new wicked people. The wicked who are not completely stuffed out come back with a vengeance and are even angrier than before. What Jonah represents is that God does not watch wickedness and blow it off. But what God does about it is different than what we might expect him to do about it. Take a look at that last word. Nineveh will be overthrown. Some of your Bible translations might have the word overturned. It's a very interesting word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word hafak, H-A-P-H-A-K. I've been practicing that all week because I don't want to mispronounce that word this Sunday. That word hafak has two possible meanings in Hebrew, both very legitimate. You know, sometimes preachers, we have this trick where a word has two meanings. One is the most common meaning, and the other one is like this really rare off usage which suits our message, so we give them that one. Go, oh yeah, it means that also. This case, it really does legitimately mean either one of these two things. The first meaning is turn over, which means to destroy. It's the same words that God used when he talked about the judgment he would bring on Sodom and Gomorrah, raining down fire on those cities. I don't know if those are meteors or what he did, but the idea was Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be overthrown. In other words, they will exist no longer. They will be destroyed and wiped physically from the face of the earth. So turned over is one meaning. I think about a turtle 
I don't know why I thought about this this morning, but if you take a turtle, it would, that's the one animal, if, if there is reincarnation, I would never want to come back as. Because you get put on your shelf upside down, you're done. What are you going to do about that problem? Unless someone helps you, that's how you die. Your soft underbelly exposed. So think about that's one meaning is you're destroyed when you're turned over. But the other meaning of hafak is turned around. So that it's the end of you because you are now converted into something else. You have turned from one thing to a completely other thing. That is, in fact, one of the most common usages of this word, hafak, which means overthrown or overturned. When you look at Exodus 7, 17, it says that the waters of the Nile will be hafakt into blood, transformed so that water becomes blood. It doesn't just look like blood, it's transformed into blood. In Joel 2.31, the sun will be hafakt into darkness. In Lamentations 5.15, the smug dancing of the wicked has hafakt into mourning and tears. But it could also mean a changing, a turning around for the good. Jeremiah 31.13 reverses and it says, mourning will be hafakt into gladness, changed into gladness. So there's two possible meanings of the word overthrown. One could be that Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and the other is that it's going to be completely and radically changed, transformed, converted. I think that Jonah is trying to stick it to the Ninevites, and this is a little bit of prophetic sabotage. Oh, I'll give him a message, all right. In 40 days, you guys are going to be overturned. And I think he's trying to pull a fast one on God, and God pulls a fast one back on him. Because which of those two meanings do you think God means? I think the most prominent and important occurrence of this word hafak occurs in 1 Samuel 10, verses 6 and 9. When speaking about, the, about King Saul, here's what God says. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you, Saul, will prophesy with the other prophets, and you will be changed hafakt, into a different person. A few verses later, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God hafakt or changed Saul's heart. And all these things were fulfilled that day. This is an overturning of who Saul is. He was one guy once, but by God's intervention, he was completely changed into something else so that the old guy is, is no longer there and a new guy has taken his place, a genuine transformation. Which of the two meanings do you think Jonah was rooting for? It says in the next chapter, he went outside after delivering this lackluster message, 40 more days, you guys are toast. And then he says he, he goes outside of the city, sits down, and watches for the fireworks to start. Because he's sure no one's going to repent, and fire is going to rain down, and God is going to hafak this city. going to overthrow it, destroy it. And he's sure that this is what's going to happen. Which of the two things do you think God is rooting for? Here's a remarkable thing that happens after this ridiculous, worst evangelistic sermon ever preached. Can you imagine going into Woodfield Mall and going, hey, in 40 days, you're all dead. That's kind of what those guys do these days, right? You're going to hell. You're going to hell. The end is near. You're going to hell. Does that win anybody's hearts? 
Do you actually expect someone to go, oh, excuse me, what? I'm going, where? What do I do to get out of this mess? No one, everyone just gives them the finger and walks on these days. It's not an effective methodology for evangelism. And yet, and here's the miracle, based on that shabby message, the entire city is in an uproar of repentance. The Ninevites believed God. I want you to think about that statement because it may be one of the most remarkable sentences in the whole Bible. The most powerful and the most wicked people in the world, no one alive outside of the Assyrian Empire would ever have expected that the Ninevites would get on their knees and show remorse for their wickedness. It says the Ninevites believed God. And what is more, they proved their remorse, not with words, but by fasting and putting on sackcloth. It's one of the reasons I use this picture. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with uncomfortable clothing, but I think my limit is, is drawn, my line is drawn at sackcloth. That is itchy stuff, dude. I don't know if you've ever taken a potato sack and tried to wear it without an undershirt, but it's a way of saying, I'm not trying to be comfortable anymore. I want to divorce myself from all the, the creature comforts that make me feel okay. And I want my body to feel what my heart feels. That's really what praying, or that's really what fasting and sackcloth and ashes is all about, is saying, I want my body to join my spirit in what I feel right now. It's weird when your heart is breaking and your body is so comfortable. That, that dissonance can be very strange for us. And so that's what the, the Ninevites are doing. These horrible people repent as a whole city and they declare a fast. We're often quick to imagine that certain kinds of people, you fill in the blank, those people will never draw near to God. They'll never show remorse. They'll never own up for what they did. They will never be broken or humbled. And we assume based on how they're behaving now, what the history looks like, their track record, we're quick to write people off and go, there's no way that ever happens. It's never going to happen. I hear people all the time saying things like that with such absolute conviction. Oh, it'll never happen. Hell will freeze over before I see those people humble themselves and turn to God. And what the Ninevites illustrate for us is the incredible and unimaginable power of God to draw people to himself. What's interesting is that the Ninevites respond to God's prophet far more readily than God's own people respond to their prophets. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, here's what God says to the prophet Ezekiel. I love this, this passage. Then God said, Son of man, which was the name he often gave to, to Ezekiel, Son of man, go to the people of Israel and give them my messages. I am not sending you to a foreign people whose language you cannot understand. No, I am not sending you to people with strange and difficult speech. If I did, they would listen. But the people of Israel won't listen to you any more than they listen to me. For the whole lot of them are hard-hearted and stubborn. This is God complaining to his prophet saying, Foreigners, the wicked people you think will never turn to me, turn to me more readily than my own people turn to me. I truly believe in the, the, the times we live in right now, just as in these days, 
that some of the hardest people for God to reach are his own people. It's been my experience as well, especially with respect to repentance. Let me ask you a question, and I mean this honestly. I've been wrestling with this all week. When's the last time you truly repented, meaning you felt so much the weight of your own immorality, your own violation against God, your own shameful conduct? When's the last time you felt that so keenly you thought, I can't even eat, I can't bear any normal comforts? I'm not in the mood to watch anything on Netflix. I don't want to surf the web. Right now, I just am so crushed by the person I've become that I can't handle it. When's the last time you experienced that level of remorse, of repentance, humbling yourself before God? My experience has been that some of the people I wrestle most with as a pastor some of the most resistant, self-justifying, unrepentant people I've ministered to are people who believe in God. I discovered that trying to get a Christian to admit their own sin is one of the most difficult tasks pastors are given. It's because we're very two-faced when it comes to justice. We want it so badly for everyone else, but everything we do wrong, there's a reason. The things we do are not nearly as bad as the things they do. And as long as I can find someone whose feet smell worse than mine, I don't have to wash my feet. <laughs> you think my feet smell bad? Go over there and smell Ed's feet. <laughs> then you'll see. You'll come back to my feet for relief. <laughs> Give me that foot again. Let me... Do you understand what I'm saying? One of the hardest things to do is to get God's own people to see what they look like before him. Sometimes those far from God have much more openness and readiness to see their fallen state. The one time here that, that, God, that Jesus mentions Jonah is in Luke 11, where he says this. Actually, he mentions him twice, but this is a significant one. Luke 11, 29 to 30, listen to what Jesus has to say about Jonah. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except what? The sign of Jonah. For as, and he was referring to the three days Jonah was in the fish as paralleling the three days he would be in the grave. And he would show them that God is a God who can conquer death and all of that. But here's why he's mentioning Jonah at all. He's mentioning Jonah here to contrast the repentance of one people group with the unrepentance of another. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will I, the Son of Man, be to this generation. And then he says this, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying what God said to Ezekiel was this. Sometimes the people furthest from God, the worst people you know, are more ready to own their junk than God's own people who claim his name but cannot see their own fallen state. The story continues that eventually... Not Jonah, but Jonah's message reached the king. 
It was a three-day assignment. He got through one day, but he couldn't do it anymore. He saw the reaction. All these Ninevites were like, really? And they began to fast and mourn. And he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. And he walks out of the city. Day one, he quits. But his message goes viral. And it starts working its way through the city like a fire. And eventually, as all things will, it reaches the leadership. And they hear about it. And when the king of Nineveh hears this proclamation from a Hebrew who had come into a city and shouted doom for his entire empire, he gets up off his throne. And in that moment in the movie, there would be ominous music. Oh, you did it now, Jonah. The king of Assyria is standing up. But he doesn't stand up in defiance. He does the most unexpected thing. The most powerful man in the world of his day gets off his throne. And he takes off his royal robes, and he kneels in remorse, and he cries out. Not only that, but think about the humility this takes. He finds out that all the people of the city, his subjects, had declared a fast to repent before this foreign god. Instead of defying that, he augments it. He expands on what they've done. He takes their fasting and their mourning, and you guys probably... Too, too young, most many of you, to remember Emerald Lagasse. But remember when he goes, bam, bam. He puts a little extra on it. These people were fasting from food, and he expands the fast to include no drinking of water. That's serious, because that's like a fast with maybe a two, at max, three-day shelf life. Everyone's dead after the third day if they don't drink water. And then what he does is almost comical. It's not just the people, but for some reason, he asks the animals to participate. He doesn't ask them. He makes them. No one feeds your animals. Don't give them any water. What is he doing here? I think the king of Nineveh illustrates for us, God's people. We're looking over the shoulder watching a heathen, a vile, foul, unjust, cruel man illustrate for us the posture that God wants all his people to have. He's not just saying, what do I have to do again to avert this doom scenario? What he says instead is, I understand that what's coming we deserve. I've always known it. We are the most powerful, but I don't want someone more powerful than us to rise up and do to us what we've been doing to everyone else. We have been jacking up the ancient Near East. We have been cruel beyond belief. I told you last time that I read books. There's one called Extreme Violence in the Texts and Visuals of Antiquity. And I I read stuff in that book that I just still can't erase. I'm so tempted to give you one of them. But I don't want to curse you with what I have to live with. These people were bad. The stuff they did to torture people was not just mean. It was creative. They understood human anatomy and physiology. And they drew out the pain and suffering as long as they could. You would shudder if you knew what they did to people. And when you do things like that to another human being, it doesn't leave you unscathed. The evil know somewhere in their heart of hearts they're evil, and they have to actively suppress that little voice that God gave every human being. That is, you are messed up. You're going to pay one day. Everyone knows this. But you can drown that voice out pretty easily for a while. And the king of Nineveh says, I know that the doom which this Hebrew prophet has proclaimed, we deserve. 
And so he gets on his knees. And he's saying, I'm not going to just go through half measures. I'm going to turn it around. I'm not going to be overturned as in destroyed, but I'm going to be overturned as in transformed. What's amazing is, after all of this, if you did half of what he did in remorse, you would feel a sense of growing righteousness and entitlement, wouldn't you? If you fasted, didn't drink water, turned away from all those things. In fact, if you had a porn addiction and you said, I'm not going to just turn off the porn. I'm going to get rid of my computer. I'm going to cancel my internet. I'm going to have to go to the public library every time I want to do a Google search. How inconvenient. But I'm serious about this once and for all. I'm not going to mess around with my sin anymore. If you had done all that, wouldn't you feel like, God, where's my blessing now? I did it. I, I did it right. I was serious. Where is my blessing? Wouldn't you feel a little entitled that after all that got you, like, you know, you're one of the good ones. I release you. This king, after all that says, and guess what? At the end of everything, who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Even after all of this, he remains humble in his posture and acknowledges that after everything they've done as a city, they still are utterly at the mercy of God. It's his to decide whether he forgives them for their considerable injustice or not. I want you to pause for a moment there because every one of us has been in the place of God in this equation too. We've had people who've done really bad things to us, things that in our mind felt unforgivable, and by some miracle they have come to a change of heart and they have approached us in groveling, with a posture of real remorse, with words of true contrition. And it's a very godlike experience to realize you have so much power to release someone else or to keep them in chains. Let me ask you about that. The last time someone who really hurt you apologized from a sincere heart. How did you feel about that apology? Where was your heart taking you in that moment? If you're anything like me, my guess is not yet. Grovel more. You're not as sorry as you need to be. You haven't paid enough. It's funny how when we're on the other side of that picture, there's an impatience. Come on already. Can we get back to how it was? Can you restore me quickly? But when we somehow sit on God's side of that table, feelings change. When someone has wronged you and they show remorse, I think in that moment, we often see one of the greatest differences between us and God. Because in that moment of empowerment, of justice, so often where our hearts take us is a place of wanting to crush the offender and let them feel the full weight of damage which they caused in our lives. It's not forgiveness we're after. It's vindication and vengeance. And yet God sees what they did, that they turned from their evil ways, and he relented. In other words, we repent 
God relents. We repent. God relents. That's as close as I'm ever going to get to rapping. But that's the nature of the heart of God. In that moment when he has all power to release or to hold captive, his heart is to release. I love these Old Testament passages that reveal the heart of God. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 8. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. If they repent, I will relent. How about Ezekiel 33:11? This is one place where I feel like we're so different from God. Say to them, Ezekiel, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. I want you to think about that person who represents everything you hate about your fellow man, everything wrong in this world, everything you wish you could change by pressing the nuclear button, getting rid of all such people. Let's not pretend we don't have that kind of person or that specific person in mind. That person who has taken on almost mythical symbolism for everything we hate. They are wickedness personified. What do you want to see happen to that person? Here in that place, we see one of the greatest differences between us and God. Because I'll be honest with you, we delight in the death of the wicked. I want to see that guy get pulled over. I want to see that horrible leader be publicly shamed and cast out. I want to see that violator of my body and my innocence violated themselves. And yet, heart of God is so different than our heart. He says, I don't want to see them die. I want to see them change. The world will look more the way God intends, not if we flush the toilet of all the wicked, but if all the wicked become godly. The king of Assyria is a wonderful example to us of what repentance looks like at the heart. We step down from our throne of self-righteousness and might and we proclaim our absolute dependence on the mercy of God. How long will that king stay off his throne? What happens after the 40-day deadline is passed and no fire rains down from heaven? Maybe day 41, they still like the way it feels to live this way. Maybe day 42, day 43. But maybe on day 45, the military does a parade in front of his palace and he remembers the might of his kingdom. Maybe on day 46, his CFO says, Hey, king, we haven't mangled anybody for taxes in a long time. We're broke. How long before that guy gets back up on the throne he stepped down from? 
and says, no, I actually missed the old way. In listening to Tim Mackey's sermon on this chapter, he introduced me to a Presbyterian minister who also was a poet by the name of Thomas John Carlyle. Mr. Carlyle wrote a book called You, Jonah. It was a collection of poems inspired by the book of Jonah. And I want to read you two lines from one of the most poignant ones called Counselor to the Almighty, where he warns God, don't be so quick to forgive these people. They're not going to stay that way. And he says to them, men repent even in ashes, but repent again of their repentance. So good. We're so sorry, and then later we go, I'm sorry that I was sorry. I'm ashamed that I was that penitent. I deserve better. I'm not going to grovel anymore. And we do this all the time. That's why I chose an image of a Ferris wheel. It feels like you're moving, but you keep ending up in the same place again and again and again. How often have you stepped down from the throne of your own life? Felt heartfelt contrition, remorse, shame at what you'd done before God and to other people. You made a wholehearted commitment to live differently, to put away those, other, those old evil ways, to say, no more, it ends today. And you did it for a while, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five days. But sooner or later, the old ways beckon again. They're familiar, they're comfortable, they are alluring. Before you know it, one step at a time, you get right back on that throne. This is the nature of what it means to be human, is we repent in ashes only later to repent again of our repentance. Why am I ending there? I'm not. I'm sharing that to say even in our most heartfelt repentance, if our standing before God depends on our remorse, we have no real hope. Because we say sorry and we'll say sorry again and again and again and again. What if it were possible to say one big I'm sorry that covers the whole mess of who you are? We have a king named Jesus who stepped down from his throne and sat in the ashes of our humanity. He understood that life without him would be a never-ending cycle of violation and repentance, restoration, followed by a yet another violation. Israel had proven it over and over, and so would we. And so God sends his son to put an end to that cycle once and for all. And while I've borrowed somewhat from the ideas of Pastor Mackey, I want to close this morning with his words at the close of his sermon, because I think he said it well. Because his love is stronger than death, is stronger than our sins and selfishness. Jesus' resurrection from the grave makes possible this new way for those who will grab onto him in belief and accept his judgment on us that we're screwed up and there's no hope for us beyond his commitment to us. And when we turn to Jesus, the risen Lord, we find grace. It is only those people who find that grace who can then actually start to forgive other people with a genuine heart. 
when you realize that you deserved wrath and instead you found mercy, you begin to want that even for the people you count your enemies. I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer. We're going to just pray for a minute and then we've got to sing a closing song and end, but where does this message leave you? Are you one who is resisting the acknowledgement that you have much to repent of before God? Are you someone who is in the place of giving forgiveness and you're resisting that? The book of Jonah is a book about enemy love. It's a treatise on how to love our enemy, how to treat the people we hate so that they become the people we love. I'm going to leave you with that. I invite you to sit in quiet and let God talk to you just for a moment. And then we'll sing a closing song. We'll end our service. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.